Okay, thank you so much for joining us. Um, yes, once again, I would like to thank everybody for joining us on this live stream. A very special uh, AMA Ask Me Anything with the man, the activist, the man of the hour himself, uh, PJ Thumb. Yes. So I guess while, while people are streaming in and I think while questions are streaming in, um, let's just give a, a quick rundown. What's, what's been going on right now? I mean, with this current, I know that there's been a lot of harassment leveled against yourself, leveled against new narrative, but what is it in particular that they are finding fault with this time? Okay, so this basically begins with last year's elections, and I think after the PAP suffered its uh, big reverse in the July 2020 elections, um, after uh, a few months, it started score settling against organizations which were effective in organizing against it. Mm -hmm. um, and in, in particular with media organizations which were effective in raising awareness about all the issues in Singapore, and New Narrative was one of them. So uh, what happened in September 2020 was that the um, Elections Department filed a police report against New Narrative stating the, that we had breached the Parliamentary Elections Act specifically mm -hmm. through unauthorized election advertising. Mm -hmm. Uh, so I was then called up for uh, interrogation by the police and I was interrogated for four hours on the 21st of September 2020. They then raided my home. Mm -hmm. uh, they took my phone. They seized my laptop. And um, they have yet to return it. And that was that until today where, uh, again, I was called up and I spent another three hours um, at Clementi Police Station with the police. All right. Okay. So, I mean, that just sounds like a giant mess, right? But I guess the question that's on everybody's mind and that's on my mind, I don't really know this uh, yet, but what happened today then? Um, we, we, we know that it was four hours of questioning, of grilling. Uh, your property was taken uh, away from you for no rhyme or reason. Uh, what was it this time? What happened? So with this time, um, the police actually called me up about a week, a week and a half ago and asked me to come down. Okay. Uh, and then we went back and forth on the exact time um, and we settled on today. Mm -hmm. um, and today I went down and they had actually asked me, uh, they had um, over the phone asked me to research certain things for them about oh. new narrative. Wait, wait, wait. <laughs> Sorry. Over the phone, they asked you to research things for them. About new narrative. About Check new. your records was the exact phrase used. Okay. Yeah. Check your records. Check your records. Okay. So they gave me a list of things they wanted to know. Okay. Then um, they, they actually called me while I was in the middle of a bout of food poisoning. So I said, look, I can't write this down right now. Mm -hmm. Email it to me. Right. And they didn't want to email it to me, but eventually they emailed it to me. Okay. And it was all things which were not relevant to the police investigation. Okay. Um, Can you give us a sampling of what exactly right. they were looking out for? So to, to give you some context, right? The reason why calling me in for questioning is um, pointless mm -hmm. is because under the law, the elections department gets to define election advertising as whatever it says it is. Yes. And intent does, is explicit in the law. Mm -hmm. Even if you intend to do something else with whatever you did, right, okay. with your advertising, mm -hmm. it doesn't matter. The elections department can still say, hey, that's illegal election advertising and uh, decide that you've broken the law. So what I did want to do 
intended to do, what new narrative wants to do, totally irrelevant. Okay. All the elections department has to do is say, that is election advertising, you broke the law, and that's it, right? Okay. And we never denied those are our posts. Mm-hmm. So there was never any need to call me in because all the evidence is on Facebook mm-hmm. and we never denied that those are our posts. Yeah. So the fact they called me in the first time shows that it was a harassment and intimidation mm-hmm. and they didn't need to seize my laptop, seize my phone, right? Yeah. Completely unnecessary because all the evidence is online. Yeah. So now this second time, they sent me a list of questions mm-hmm. and this list of questions is about who has control of our advertiser account. Right? Who makes the decisions to post these uh, you know, articles and um, who makes the decision to boost the articles? Okay. Right? Things like that. Right? Yeah. And um, in general and then specifically for each of the posts. Mm-hmm. So I look at that and I'm like, that, this is pointless because the law explicitly states intent is meaningless with regards to the Parliamentary Elections Act, with regards to political advertising mm-hmm. during the election. Yeah. So it's, it's definitely not um, for the purposes of the case at hand because whatever you intended to do... Um, makes no difference. It makes no law. difference, right? Yeah. If they decide that it's, it's contravened the law, then it's contravened the law. Yeah. So that, I think, links to a very interesting question or a very interesting insight that I've been sort of looking at, right? Mm-hmm. Which is that there is uh, an idea that right now what they're trying to do is collect information to fuel uh, a bill being passed that prevents against, quote-unquote, foreign intervention. So can you tell us more about that? So um, back in August 2019, mm-hmm. uh, our good old friend, Minister K. Shanmugam, Lord Shan, ha- he gave a speech where he talked about foreign intervention and uh, you know, the dangers um, of foreign intervention in Singapore, mm-hmm. right? And then... Um, he specifically mentioned two media organizations which mm-hmm. were um, suspect and which were obviously going to be targeted by this law. Yeah. And it's the Online Citizen Asia and it's New Narrative. Okay. So uh, we have a question uh, coming in from the chat right now, which is when and how has this law been used in the past? Uh, the Parliamentary Elections Act? I'm going to suppose that that's the one, yes. Um, has it been used in the past? So, to my knowledge, the whole bit about elections advertising has not been used before, but okay. um, I think it, it might have been used in the 70s and 80s mm-hmm. uh, to target the opposition, right? Um, in that period in particular, the PAP was very aggressive at shutting down the opposition. All right. um, it opened up a bit, of course, after Lee Kuan Yew retired and Go Chok Tong was... Prime Minister, Mm -hmm. um, to my knowledge, in recent elections, Mm -hmm. it's not the Parliamentary Elections Act, the the, sorry, the advertising clause which has been used uh, to target um, um, activism and independent media and independent journalists, but cooling off day, right? Ah. Because anything that happens on cooling off day that can be again simply declared to be. favoring a candidate of some sort of... Because the, the law on cooling off day is very similar to the law on election advertising. Basically, whatever you say, mm-hmm. the elections department can simply decide that mm-hmm. it's you know, a violation, file a police report, and next thing you know, people like Teo So Lang, like Roy Neng, you know, they get their homes raided, they get their stuff confiscated, they go through this whole 
uh, harassment and interrogation process from the police. Mm-hmm. And then in the meantime, uh, as we've seen in the past, pro-PAP people who post on cooling off day, uh, other people file a police report against them. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the police, you know, nothing happens, let them off with a warning, etc. Right, so it's actually the question is not really about the law. It's about how a the law is uh, has a huge amount of discretion uh, handed to the um, the you know unelected officials in this case, mm-hmm. right? Sometimes elected, but often unelected officials to simply decide what is right and what is wrong, right? Mm-hmm. And you see this pattern throughout all of these laws that governments make: Public Order mm-hmm. Act, POFMA, you know. And then the other problem, of course, is that it's not applied even-handedly. So thank you so much for the question and the amazing response, right? I want to invite everybody on the chat to please, right, send us your interesting questions. Um, And it's an ask me anything, so please don't uh, hold back, right? I mean, PJ's been through one round of interrogation. What's one more? All right. (laughs) (laughs) But anyway, um, you know, jokes aside, um, I think that um, there's a question that I want to ask, right? And it it comes from from my own personal experience, having been, um, you know, through the, the SMRT protest, right? Which is, I think that there's a side uh, to government harassment that I think people don't necessarily see unless they've been through it. And uh, a side of emotional turmoil and burden, which is unfairly placed on the individual, right? So can you share with us um, some of those uh, emotional stresses, the mental health toll that this whole thing has taken on you, your loved ones, friends and family? Okay, mm-hmm. so I think to, to answer that, you need to understand, right, the, board, the broader circumstances in Singapore mm-hmm. where Singaporeans fundamentally don't, we lack basic rights mm-hmm. that um, people in other countries, including countries around us, mm-hmm. you know, Malaysia, Indonesia, the Philippines, citizens there actually have more rights than Singaporeans, mm-hmm. especially in terms of basic uh, the fundamental protections for human liberty mm-hmm. um, and avoiding, um, you know, unreasonable uh, har- um, arrest and harassment from security services like the police, mm-hmm. right? In Singapore, um, because of the way laws are worded, the way the PAP has changed the laws, has eroded our protections, um, you, for example, when you go in for questioning, you don't get to have a lawyer with you. Mm -hmm. You're not allowed to have access to a lawyer until after you uh, are charged. And even then, they can withhold access to a lawyer um, until uh, a reasonable amount of time. And that reasonable time has never been capped, right? They've uh, denied people access to a lawyer for as long as 28 days, Mm -hmm. but there's never been an official cap put on what is reasonable. Mm -hmm. So you don't have this, what is a very basic fundamental uh, right in other countries to have a lawyer. Mm-hmm. But you also have to think about the broader context Singapore where it's assumed that you have a sort of omniscient government which knows so much about you and is happy to use that information to destroy you, right? They have surveillance uh, all over the place. You use your IC number to access all sorts of government services. Mm-hmm. So the moment you know the government's coming after you, uh, you realize just how much information they have about you and your life and how they could use all of that to destroy you. Mm-hmm. And a lot of the time, they do that to activists because they already make our lives so difficult. You know, I've been very vocal about how I am blacklisted from working in Singapore, mm-hmm. right? And you won't find that on paper anywhere. It's phone calls from the, you know, a minister to NUS, 
right? And next thing you know, I'm not, I, I can't be hired at any university. Mm-hmm. So things like that, right? So that's the kind of power that the government has. Then you add to that the power that the security services have. Mm-hmm. And you realize that once you walk into that police station, you actually have very few rights. Mm-hmm. You have very little protection. Mm-hmm. And they can do whatever they want to you. And um, you then realize, you know, you're actually putting yourself in a very vulnerable, risky position. Mm-hmm. And they could literally do almost anything. And how would you stop them? Mm-hmm. You know, and so you end up getting very anxious and nervous and worried about this. Mm-hmm. And of course, you don't know what questions they're going to throw at you. They, you don't know what's going to happen to you in there. Um, and it's, uh, I, I have to say, it's very, very stressful. Mm-hmm. And it's very, very unfair uh, when you... Um, when you you don't have anyone in your corner to help you, uh, you know, during the the whole process, Mm -hmm. right? The moment you go in there, you're alone. Okay. Vulnerable. So we've got a question just coming in and I want to kind of just shoot that your way, PJ. Uh, And that's, uh, why did you bother to assist uh, with the investigations if you could maintain your right to silence uh, throughout um, prosecution has the sole obligation and resources to build their case. Because yes. it's illegal not to assist the police in their investigation. Okay, so, so there's no right to silence. So you can, you have to go in there and answer those questions, okay. right? If you don't go in there, uh, then you're breaking the law. All right. So you have to go in. Okay. But if you go in there and they ask you a question and you, you decline to reply, Mm-hmm. You say no comment. That's totally legal. You can do that. And there is still a provision in the law that says, that gives you the right not to self-incriminate. Mm-hmm. The problem is that if they decide to charge you, usually what happens, and there's plenty of precedent in Singapore's legal cases for this, is that if you decline to reply, if you say no comment, mm-hmm they will argue that that is a form of self-incrimination, basically. Mm-hmm. Now, lawyers are going to explain this in more detail than me, but basically silence is seen as implying very much guilt mm-hmm. from what I understand, yeah. right? So uh, that's, that's one aspect, right? So you have to go in there. You have to answer the questions. You don't have to give them any information. You can decline to comment. Mm-hmm. Okay, so um, I want to just shoot off another question here, which is, um, I've always been curious, are the police cordial, aggressive, biased, unbiased, etc., when they are doing their job with regard to politically motivated cases? How okay. was it? Yeah, because yeah. You've, got, you've gone through a few rounds of it, right? Well, so um, have you. Uh, I went through once. Luckily for me, yeah. I just had once. Um, uh, but what about, okay, let, let's hear from you first. You're the man of the okay, hour. I mean, how, well, how are the police? Okay, so I only have my own experience, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe you can talk about your experience after that. But mm-hmm. um, with me, they were um, cordial. Okay. I, that's how I would put it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think it depended on the different officers. The first time I went in, the uh, the sort of head of the entire department came down and spoke to me personally and he said look dr thumb uh no actually i think call him call me mr thumb um mm-hmm. you know we could have handled this differently mm-hmm. but instead we invited you here to speak to us mm-hmm. to answer questions we have not taken away 
your phone they hadn't at that point it was okay. before the questions mm-hmm. you know uh and and so he says you can see how we are choosing to handle this mm-hmm. a police has report has been filed and we are obligated to investigate mm-hmm. no they're not by the way but you know uh and so this is how we're choosing to handle it and i hope you understand Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, so that sort of thing, right? Okay. So that is sort of, the, the, in some ways, you could read it both ways. They're yes. signaling to me, hey, we know this is a political case. Mm-hmm. We are going to do what we have to do, and you do what you have to do, mm-hmm. and we'll get this over with quickly, mm-hmm. right? It wasn't quickly. But the flip side of that is you could also read that as him saying, look, cooperate or this could be so much worse mm-hmm. and it's impossible for me to say what exactly what message you were sending mm-hmm. right but the investigating officer who interviewed me now his boss right who was over in charge of case was was um seemed very anxious that this would not become um you know a, a problem for him mm-hmm. okay but i interacted with him very little so i don't know now the investigating officer so i invest i interact at three levels head of the whole you know, police station, whatever, the investigating officer, the head investigator and the guy who interviewed me, the guy who interviewed me was very nice, very polite, very professional. Mm-hmm. Um, I, of course, don't know him well enough to say exactly what he was thinking, mm-hmm. but I would hazard that he also didn't think that this was uh, a serious case. He understood that it was a political case and I would hazard that he behaved accordingly. Mm-hmm. Um, but of course, what I, I can only say is he behaved very professionally mm-hmm. and did what he needed to do. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think that, that, that's, that that's more or less my, my experience similar as well, right? Uh, in that it's, it's really the bureaucracy of the, of the machine mm-hmm. that gets you and not the individuals themselves. I'm sure yeah. they're just wonderful uh, human beings and Singaporeans in their own right, right? Um, but yeah, it's the, it's the state machinery. So, I mean, my, yeah. my thing was when, when I went in, you know, the, the, the officer just asked... Um, you know, did you did you commit vandalism? And I said no. And he was like, I mean, did did any of the participants put pieces of paper on the uh, on the trains? And I was like, yes. So you did commit vandalism? No, I didn't. That's not vandal. You know what I'm saying? So we're yeah. speaking a different language, and um, you know, it's it's understandable to a certain degree, but at the same time, yes, I think even if you get a nice police officer who's really, um, you know, just trying to relate to another human being and do his job um do their job um yeah it's 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 the state machinery that still yeah. that still gets you i i should quote of course lim chin Siong quite mm-hmm. famously who said don't pa mata they are wage earners too they are also people and when the time comes for uh, for us to rise up against the british colonialists and vote them out we want the police on our side mm. uh so uh same thing you know 60 years later um i don't um, hold it against the individuals who are doing their jobs. Mm-hmm. Uh, I hold accountable the political leaders who have created this really ridiculous situation, mm-hmm. this oppressive situation. The people who sit in the cabinet are the ones who have created all these laws, who have created this environment of fear. They're the ones we need to hold accountable. Mm-hmm. So I want to take some time out to thank everybody for joining in, tuning in, uh, watching the stream, and especially for asking the wonderful questions that are coming in. Um, please keep them rolling, um, and we're going to try and get to every single one of them uh, as quickly as we can, all right? So the next question coming up is, even if our ridiculous laws are even-handedly applied, for example, in the case of Louis Ng, MP Louis Ng, uh, such enforcement of laws necessarily serves to strike fear into the people and discourage people from speaking up. 
uh, about issues that matter. 100% agree here. Um, so eventually it cre creates a system of fear and a culture of not speaking out because of repercussions. What can be done to address this? Yeah. Well, this is, this is the, the broader problem in Singapore, right? That mm -hmm. there is so much fear. And the only way to really um, combat that is to collectively organize to push back and fight and stand up for our rights. Mm -hmm. We need to know that we're not alone. And this is what New Narrative is trying to do, mm -hmm. uh, to create a platform where people can learn about democracy and learn about collective organization and work mm -hmm. together. The best thing, the, the probably the strongest thing that helped me and would help anyone who wants to stand up is to know you're not alone, mm -hmm. to know that you're working together. And, you know, at this point, I have to really thank my colleagues at New Narrative. They are amazing. They did a fantastic job uh, standing up for me today. And they really had my back. Mm -hmm. um, they, you know, uh, ran this whole campaign while I was in there in the police station, and it really helps. Mm -hmm. So when you look at, you know, things happening in civil society, activists turn up for other activists, right? Mm -hmm. And um, a whole bunch of activists showed up today, including yourself, thank you for being there, uh, to wish me well before I went in, and many people waited until I came out, right? And they would um, do things like, you know, ask the, the desk officer what what's going on with me every hour, hmm. you know, make sure that there was pressure, make sure that I knew that I wasn't alone. Mm -hmm. So I think the number one thing is to work collectively together. Mm -hmm. Don't let our system atomize you and isolate you. Find other people whom you want to work with and slowly build uh, trust and take collective action mm -hmm. to create change. And mm -hmm. it can be you know, very small, but eventually, you have to remember, right? We outnumber them. You know, the people in power, there's very few of them. Mm -hmm. And honestly, this being Singapore, it's like three, four, or five people who truly, truly have the ability to really create massive change in Singapore, who really center, you know, hold all the power in their hands. Mm -hmm. There's millions of us and we just, if we can just work together and stick together, we can create great, great change. So that's the answer, collective action. Mm -hmm. I also want to add in that you can uh, help out in your own way by uh, liking and commenting and sharing posts, right? I sound like a YouTuber, but basically keeping this story from fading out of the news cycle, mm -hmm. keeping Singaporeans from not slowly falling into apathy, yeah. driving this up, right? Using the hashtag, I'm with PJ Tom. Right? That affects the algorithms, that affects uh, what people see and how uh, prioritized the story is on the various social media algorithms. So that's something that we can all do. Hashtag I'm with PJ Thumb. All right. I also want to add combat misinformation. There's a lot of misinformation mm -hmm. out there. Um, and there's a lot of things that people don't realize about laws, about how a system works. Again, that's what New Narrative is trying to do. Mm -hmm. Watch my videos, share my videos. And if you can, please do join New Narrative as a member because we really we rely entirely on membership revenue, membership subscriptions and donations. So join as a member and be part of this pro process that we're trying to build. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to shoot you another question here, which is, are there any laws or obligations that items taken by the police have to be returned within a certain period of time? No. Not at, just not at all. <laughs> no, as far as I know, no, no. They, they, um, it is very problematic because basically they can do whatever they want pretty much, mm -hmm. you know, for all intents and purposes, if they can have some sort of 
reasonable justification mm -hmm. for what they're doing. Yeah. Right? So they can take whatever they want if they simply say, I suspect that it contributes to the case in some way mm -hmm. and then hold on to it till the end of the case. Mm -hmm. And that's what they do to us, right? They suspect that, you know, there's something on a laptop. They hold the laptop for, what, a year, 18 months. They return the laptop to you so long as the laptop was returned broken. And, um, yeah. Oh. Yeah, and they didn't pay for it, you know. Um, and they pressured her to sign a statement saying it wasn't broken when it came back. I, you know, you can ask her. Uh, she may even be in the audience. Um, but, you know, that's what they do, right? And then at the end of it, they close the case, they give you a warning, they say, hey, you know, we didn't charge you, what are you complaining about? But it's the 18 months, right, where they took all your stuff, your books, your papers, your phone, your laptop, and then held on to it and just made your life difficult that way by calling you in for repeated investigations, mm -hmm. right? And then at the end, they don't charge you and they say, look, what? justice has been done, you weren't charged. Mm -hmm. you know? So that's, Sean was, you know, hit the nail on the head when he said, it's the bureaucracy which grinds you mm -hmm. down. That's how they get you. Yeah. And I mean, I, I got to say, when, when the, the thing, one of the things that I was most afraid of when, when this happened to me was, my work is on my laptop. Mm -hmm. Like, this is my life, you know. Mm -hmm. If you just take it away, that's so much data there's so much work that's lost but mm. well yes um, short answer to that question there's absolutely no guarantee or protection that your items will be returned um, and even when they are they may be broken okay yeah. so anyway um, next question coming in to what extent did you anticipate the government's response when you found a new narrative and have there been anything that has helped you mentally emotionally and physically prepare for the government's response Oh, yes. So I, when I found a new narrative, I definitely anticipated that there would be a very strong response. Mm -hmm. um, and I was mentally prepared to, you know, um, weather it. Um, the, the thing, of course, is intellectually knowing something mm -hmm. and actually living through it are two very different things. Mm -hmm. um, so... I think that there is nothing that can truly prepare you for it. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, like truly make you 100% sort of uh, um, fireproof, right? Mm -hmm. But you can prepare for it in a sense that you can, um, especially if you work collectively with people, mm -hmm. understand what's going to happen, mm -hmm. know what rights you do have and what rights you don't have, know how the process is. Right. So uh, activists have all sorts of developed all sorts of standard procedures when it comes to these things. Mm -hmm. And I followed those standard procedures. Mm -hmm. Right. And so it saved me a lot of hassle, a lot of difficulty. Mm -hmm. uh, so, again, right, if you want to do this sort of thing, I strongly urge you, if you just want to stand up for your basic rights, do so collectively. Mm -hmm. Find other people who are doing it. Understand the issues. You know, and just approach any of us. Approach me. I'm right here. Ask me a question, you know, anytime, right? Come to our new narrative events and we'll happily talk to you and explain to you. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, and then um, once you have that, it makes it a lot easier. Mm -hmm. so and, jump the, and the other thing mm -hmm. I'd recommend is therapy. Okay. <laughs> therapy. Everyone should go for therapy. It's very important. Fully support that message right there. Um, but I think jumping off of that question, right, just a, just, a, just a short statement will do. But I mean, when you woke up this morning knowing, okay, I'm going to have to walk into the bureaucratic state machine that is out to crush me. Uh, was there a thought that you had, a little morning ritual that you did to kind of brace yourself going in? Or was it, it just... It wasn't this morning. Mm -hmm. It was the whole previous couple of days. Mm -hmm. Um all the things that we did to prepare, 
all the things that my colleagues did. For example, one of the things that we learned in Singapore is because the Singapore government really cherishes its international reputation, mm-hmm. the more you make yourself a case internationally and have international allies mm-hmm. and risk their reputation, the more they hate it and the more that constrains their behavior. Mm-hmm. Of course, ultimately, they can do whatever they want, right? Mm-hmm. You know, sovereign government and all that. But there are things which you can do to fight back, push back, protect yourself. Mm-hmm. And you need to understand that. And that's why allies are so important. Mm-hmm. You know, not just in Singapore, but globally. Okay. So we've got another question coming in here, which is what is the future of free speech in Singapore? And what can the layman do to support freedom of speech and let the government know that they can't take away our rights just like that? Um, I think that's an interesting question. I think um, we are going to see a lot more attacks. Now, coming back to this whole law against foreign interference, mm. what is very clear, it's, it's not a law against foreign interference. It's a law against specific kinds of speech that the government doesn't like, mm-hmm. right? Because foreign interference is such a, a vague and amorphous term. Mm-hmm. Um, and the biggest form of foreign interference is foreign direct investment. Mm-hmm. Is the government going to stop that? Yeah. No. I mean, foreign investment? No. They want us to bend over backwards to cater to foreigners, right? That's I have to point out also yeah. that, they're, that they are inviting somebody from America, a transphobe and a homophobe, to tell us yeah. about trans issues in Singapore. So, um, yes. well, that makes absolutely no sense. But yeah, so yeah. I guess your prediction on the future of free speech in Singapore is that they are going to continue attacking uh, independent journalists like yourself. It's begun with new narrative. Who knows how much further yeah, it's I mean, going it to continue going. Yeah, I mean, it way, way back, right? But what can, the, what can yeah. the lay person do to combat this? I think... Um, Again, it's about collective action, mm-hmm. um, about looking for good, reliable sources of information. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I'd like to, I hope New Narrative is one of them because we work very hard mm-hmm. on making sure all our work is evidence-based mm-hmm. uh, and sharing it and getting together people to discuss it and pushing back against um, attempts by the government to monopolize um, the, the narrative but also publicizing and supporting people who are trying to stand up for your rights, mm-hmm. right? And whether or not you agree with it, uh, you have to stand up for, for Jolivan. You have to stand up for all the people who are trying to fight for a better Singapore. And it could be as simple as you know, making a donation to one of the many um, organizations like Marua, mm-hmm. you know, who are trying to make a difference. Support the online citizen. I mean, really, the online citizen, Terry is amazing. We really do need to make sure that the online citizen survives. Mm-hmm. And unlike New Narrative, you know, we are based in KL, right? If they shut us down here, I'm just going to keep reporting from over the border or whatever, mm-hmm. wherever I end up. Terry is here and he's vulnerable. So support the online citizen. Support the people who are trying to preserve your freedom of expression. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, don't, don't be afraid. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Ultimately, what can they do to you uh, when you outnumber them? Mm. You know, collective action. Yeah. So speaking of freedom of expression, we'd just like to say um, that this is this is a big uh, expression of our freedom, our freedom of speech, right? And we'd like to encourage all of the uh, all of our viewers to continue sending us your very thought provoking and very interesting questions. All right. So we're going to take another question now, which is for both the times that you were called to the police, were you charged? Did you know who initiated these charges? And how does one even find out who initiates the charges being filed against you? Let's take that bit by bit. I guess first, were you ever charged? No, no, I haven't been charged. Okay. Uh, yeah. 
uh, and you have to understand charging actually changes the the state of affairs, mm. right? If the police are investigating, basically they can do whatever they want to you mm -hmm. because you don't have a lawyer and you lack legal protections. Mm -hmm. But if they decide to charge you, then you actually have crossed the threshold where you're supposed to start having legal protections mm -hmm. and it makes their life more difficult and it makes your life more difficult, obviously. Mm. But it also starts down a path which, um, especially for a political case, is, mm. you know, uh, commits people to a certain um, course of action. So it's actually unlikely that you get charged, mm -hmm. especially for a political case. Which is a kind yeah. of convenient little loophole, right? Because they yeah. could just levy whatever attacks or harassment they want on you and just be like, oh, you know, with our investigation, we're not going to charge you. Nothing's going to happen, right? And it never goes on the books. Yeah. Um, so, but mm. uh, just to answer the other thing, right? Who initiated the charges? I mean, it's you, we know that the uh, police report was filed by the elections department, part of the prime minister's office. But ultimately, it's the attorney general's office which decides whether to charge you. Mm -hmm. um, and if the attorney general's office made very clear at the beginning... So again, right, this shows how stupid all of this is because uh, if they make clear at the beginning, hey, we're not going to charge you, the police wouldn't bother investigating. Mm. And if they had made clear also, yes, right, the ELD says this is unauthorized election advertising, so yes, let's charge him straight away, mm -hmm. that would also have been clear cut. So the, the fact that there are, you know, two rounds of interrogation clearly shows that that is deliberate, right, because of the way the law works, because of the way the Attorney General's office, mm -hmm. the chambers works, you know, because of the way the, the police work. It's quite clear they should have either charged me or dropped this case a long time ago. Mm -hmm. They could have done that the day they, the ELD filed the police report. Uh, but instead, they've dragged it out months and months now. Mm. Yeah. All right. So another question here, um, which I like very much, is from a university student, right? So as a university student studying in a Singaporean local university, how can I get my faculty, teaching and research staff to be more politically engaged? They hold so much knowledge, but they are not budging as much as I hope for. And yeah, I have to say, I personally resonate with this question because, um, you know, I... I, I, I was raised on this diet of like people like Cornell West, right, or academia that would stand in solidarity um, with individuals who are coming out and saying things or who are being unfairly persecuted by the government. We, we just don't see that um, in Singapore as much, right? Yeah. Um, so yeah, I guess the question is how, how, can, we, um, how can we get faculty to, to care more, to be more politically engaged, right? Well, I mean, look at me, right? I all I did was start publishing. This was even before I became a an activist. Activist. Mm -hmm. All I did was publish my work, and the government didn't like it. And next mm -hmm. thing you know, I'm blacklisted. Mm. And from their point of view, right? If they're a foreigner, obviously that means um, they can very easily lose their employment pass, mm -hmm. uh, lose their livelihood, and they're well paid. And you know, why would they risk that? Mm. And we've seen uh, people who are, even PRs, right? Uh, people who lived here their whole lives lose their positions and be forced to leave because of minor activism. Mm -hmm. You know, people that I'm sure pretty much no one in this chat ever heard of. F Philip Holden, for example, mm -hmm. right? Loves Singapore. And, you know, should, ha should have, I mean, contributed so much to our cultural scene. Mm -hmm. 
-hmm. And now he's, I don't know, I can't even remember where he is now, you mm -hmm. know. So, um, and if they're Singaporean, if they consider, again, the way that our whole neoliberal capitalist system works, mm -hmm. as I've explained in the video, you're loaded down with debt, right? Debt to buy a home in particular, debt to buy a car, debt mm -hmm. to support your family. And then you're well paid and you are at the university. Are you going to risk that? Mm. You know, so it's, it's very, very hard for people in that position who have families and jobs and a huge mountain of debt, mortgages, right? Car payments, uh, uh, education, children's schools, you know, all of that to pay. Mm -hmm. um, so I think, uh, and, and of course you've seen, you, you look at the number of academics who've been forced to leave over the years, mm -hmm. pretty much a who's who of anyone who's ever overtly tried to um, take a different view, not even an anti-PAP view, mm -hmm. right? But people like Cherry and George and Donald Lowe, who are by no means anywhere near as radical as, you know, as we'd like, or, you know, and, and nowhere near as radical as I've been, mm. right? And they've been forced out. Anyone who wants to have a different view has been forced out. Um, so I, I think the best you can hope for when it comes to, uh, to answer this question, um, mm -hmm. you know, is really about trying to get these professors to think about things differently, mm -hmm. uh, to maybe help you organize, um, you know, um, discover different resources, right? Uh, if they're willing to, if they're not, they're not, you know. Mm -hmm. But also try to help you, give you some cover for your activities as a student. Mm. Um, it's, it's very important as a student um, to use that time to learn and grow and try different things mm -hmm. but it also helps very much if you have a faculty ally who's willing to give you cover or uh, you know um, help you navigate through the system so there think about how you can work with them mm -hmm. rather than asking them to conform to the way that you want change to happen mm -hmm. right you create your change but other people, because they have different incentive structures around them, which make their life very difficult, mm -hmm. think about how they can help within the constraints of their position. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, I love that answer. Yeah, basically, um, to the to the faculty, to the research staff, you know, try and find some way into civil society. Find some way into the student groups and. You know, there are tons of student groups that are coming up right now. We just spoke to Loon. Uh, we spoke to many student activists. The university scene in Singapore is really bubbling with new ideas, um, bubbling with very progressive ideas. Yeah. Um, so yes, faculty, come on, let's let's yeah. get on it. All right. Okay. So anyway, the next question coming in is actually a question that I'm quite curious in. Uh, it's a personal question for you, which is, if you were to distill it to a few names, who would you say ignited your initial steps into the journey of activism? Oh well. Uh you know, I think I think it's for activism. I think as a historian, mm -hmm. um so there's a bunch of names that helped me become a historian. Okay. But then I learned about historians who were also activists and I realized it is the responsibility of a historian to use that knowledge to make the world better. Mm -hmm. Right? Um, Could we get one big name here? Oh, sure. Um, oh, crap, suddenly I'm blanking. Um, what's his name? Um, Fanon? Uh, oh, Fanon's good. Uh, no, mm -hmm. History of the United States. Um, 
People's History of the United States. <laughs> Sorry, long okay. day, everyone. Yes, um, yeah, I'm sure someone in the the chat will will uh, remember. Wait, people's. And this is a, sort of on a personal note. This is some Howard Zinn. All right, Howard Zinn. Yes, Howard Zinn. And so this is personally while you were in university. This is the person that that got you into history as activism. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Very much so of emulating his model, right? So mm-hmm. he was. Um, you know, he, he wrote a radically different history of the U.S. by telling... The first chapter is brilliant. It tells the story from the perspective of the Native Americans who were tortured, raped, oppressed, enslaved, beaten. And the story becomes so different. And you mm. understand why Columbus is actually an arch-colonialist and villain in our history, mm. uh, you know, in our global history, right? Because he helped pioneer the the and justify the rape and torture of indigenous people all over the world because mm-hmm. of his myth. Mm. So Howard Zinn, definitely. Uh, but also activists who um, you know, were not historians, but other activists. And as an athlete, I think uh, I grew up, my father brought me up very much on the legend of Muhammad Ali and mm-hmm. how an athlete can make a very big difference. Mm-hmm. right? And so he was very important mm-hmm. uh, to know that you're willing to give up everything, the thing that mattered most to him in life, mm-hmm. his boxing career, mm-hmm. the thing that defined him. He was willing to give it all up based on principle. That was very important. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, um, I've always talked about my, my faith, right? Being a Methodist, the story of Jesus, the original bearded socialist, lefty, <laughs> radical, right? Who uh, fought the government and... Um, you know, ended up changing the world. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think um, in Singapore, you know, Chin Seong, right? Lim mm. Chin Seong, hugely inspiring when you read his work. Um, and, and I really hope to get his writing in front of more people because, uh, you know, it's on my list of books that I'm writing, mm-hmm. um, but a book um, that sort of collects all his, his writing, all his speeches into mm-hmm. one. His, he's actually hugely inspiring when you look at what he accomplished and the things he talked about. I like the intergenerational overlap here because Lim Chin Seong uh, and the book Comet in Our Sky was one of the books that got me really mm. interested in activism, Singapore activism, right? I yeah. think for a lot of young people getting into US global politics, um, looking at Brexit, looking at Black Lives Matter, that's all very appealing, right? But to, but that was the book that really drove it home, that mm. Singapore was a place worth fighting for and that people had fought for and given their lives for. But and yes. this sort of broader international context, right? Because mm-hmm. in Singapore, we hear about uh, people from abroad, right? We, we read about, say, Gandhi. Mm-hmm. We read about, uh, you know, Sun Yat-sen and glorify him or the heroes of the, of the Chinese revolution. Mm-hmm. Um, or we hear about Martin Luther King. Mm-hmm. And the thing is, Chin Seong was their contemporary. Mm-hmm. You know, we talk about Fanon, right? We talk about um, Jomo Kenyatta, you know, the heroes of African revolution, African anti-colonialism. Chin Seong was their contemporary. Mm. Nehru, you know. Chin Seong was recognized alongside them as a, a hero, as an anti-colonial. And his life and his death were mourned by all of them as well. So we have our own heroes. It's just that it's been suppressed by the government. Mm. But to look at Chin Seong and understand how he was not just this one Singaporean, but part of a global, great, radical, left-wing, anti-colonial tradition, right? To free and liberate people and give them self-determination and know that we have it in our past as well. It's usually mm-hmm. inspiring. Mm. 
So speaking about international effects, right, we have a question here coming in, uh, which is ultimately Singapore profits from what China is doing to Hong Kong. And there are cases like this, which capture the international attention, and it can raise red flags, which affect which companies and corporations decide to locate themselves here. So what do you think is the impact of uh, of international recognition, of international condemnation of human rights abuses in Singapore. I think there's a cynical point of view uh, which would go along and say, oh, you know, the international scene can, can cry about it as much as they want and they can flag it to, to whatever uh, institution they want, but it's not going to change anything here. So what do you think about the international uh, response and condemnation Wait, so to human you, rights you, abuses? You think the cynical view is, is not going to change anything? Yeah, you know, it's, oh, they're all overseas. and that maybe they won't locate themselves here. Yeah. So I'm not sure whether this this question is advocating for or against mm-hmm. uh, what you know. What but I, I think I think regardless. So what do you what do you see as the effect of international repudiation or condemnation of human rights abuses, whether think, that be economic or or social or political? Look, I I, th- I think it, first of all, it's it's really important, you know, that we need to break out of this whole national international. There's just humanity. You mm-hmm. know, we're all human beings. Whether you where you're born, where you grow up right you can't choose where you're born first of all mm. and where you grow up which side of a border you end up on it's a matter of luck mm-hmm. there are basic international human rights that apply to all human beings and every single country in the un is part of the international convention of human rights you know so we even if you say sovereignty well our government is a signatory to that convention mm-hmm. right we have a responsibility to live up to the conventions that we are a part of that we accede to Convention of Human Rights is one of them. Mm-hmm. So we recognize basic human rights. Mm-hmm. We back recognize social cultural rights. You know, so that's the first thing. I think we, we need to break out of this whole, you know, here and there. Look, when it comes to human rights, human rights are universal. Okay. And I don't agree with people who put a price tag on it. Mm-hmm. Because I don't know what the point of our human society is if you're going to be so cynical and... and uh, say, you know, human rights, but trade it off for, uh, you know, uh, greater, for more money, mm-hmm. right? For greater income. Mm-hmm. I mean, there is a, a certain sort of, um, it, it's a very sort of destructive, cynical idea to think that you can trade human rights for, I don't know, greater income. It, mm-hmm. It's not, it doesn't, first of all, it doesn't work that way, right? Mm-hmm. You can have human rights and be a high-income country. Mm. There's plenty of, you know, countries around the world, including now in Asia, right? South Korea, Japan, Taiwan, right? They're doing mm. a much better job than we are, and they're all wealthy countries. Mm. Um, but if you're willing to sell off your humanity for a bit more money, that's a slippery slope because mm. the other end of that slope where you're going to is colonialism, <laughs> right? It's slavery. Mm. And... We don't want to... That's the whole point of our society. We're trying to raise ourselves above that. So I'm not sure exactly what this person trying to answer this question, but, (laughs) you know, I think that it's very destructive to think about our world in terms of nation states. Mm. And that's how capitalists and, uh, like, uh, nationalists, right, ethno-nationalists who've been trying to manipulate us have been trying to manipulate us by creating this idea that people in different nation states are different. Mm-hmm. When we're not, we're all human beings. Mm-hmm. And they're you know, trying to turn us against each other. Mm-hmm. The same way ethno-nationalists turn people of the same class who should have 
joint shared class solidarity mm-hmm. against each other by saying just because you know you're Chinese and you're Malay and you're Indian, you should oppose each other. Mm-hmm. When actually it's the capitalists who are exploiting us, mm-hmm. who are making our lives miserable. Right, it's the authoritarian dictators. It's people like the PAP government and what they're trying to do to us. That's who we should be opposing together, not mm-hmm. fighting with each other. All right. So the next question coming in is a very practical question here, which is, if the legal battle continues, what is the likelihood that lawyers, you know, I'm guessing Singaporean lawyers, would want to take the case? Oh, lawyers will love, you know, I, I have lawyers. I've got plenty of lawyers. Uh, mm. All the activists have plenty of lawyers. Singaporean, there's a core group of Singaporean lawyers who take uh, and happily fight all these cases. Just look at the whole uh, 377A constitutional challenge. Mm. You know, you can see all the whole spectrum of lawyers, right? Uh, Chu Cheng Si, Eugene Thurasingam, M. Ravi, right? They're, they're, they're all there. Oops. Uh, Peter Lo, you know, they're, they're all there, right? So they'll, they'll happily help you. So one of the great things about Singapore is because of how we're set up, right? Lawyers actually have a lot of power. Uh, to influence the system in very specific ways. Mm-hmm. And we have a core group of very dedicated lawyers who are very keen to do everything they can to fight. So I, another thing, I want to you know, thank all these lawyers because I've worked with all of these lawyers in different cases before and more lawyers whom you know, I, I don't know if I can mention, but uh, they're, they're all fantastic. One of you who've worked very hard um, to help people in a lot of ways and they do it pro bono. Mm-hmm. All right. So next question coming in is, do you see critical spectator? Oh, my God. Okay. (laughs) Everybody take a breath. All right. Do you see critical spectator, a Polish national, as someone who is foreign interference, posting anti-left views? Or is he also a key part of the fabric writing about Singapore and therefore acceptable? I sort of, I, okay, I sort of get the questions here. So is is, um, critical spectator... Um, you know, foreign interference, something that we should condemn and try and exercise from the political scene in Singapore. Or, you know, as much as we disagree with their views, we should still welcome them into the agora of thought, into the discussion that we have about uh, local politics. Okay, so I think there's a very interesting discussion here, right? Mm -hmm. Um, I'm quite unsettled on this because, you know, I would would sort of like him gone, but, you know... (laughs) But then I know that there are serious problems to saying I'd like that person gone. So what do you think about this? My principle is you, um, you know, you, we, we tolerate people who are also, uh, who also accept the principle of tolerance, mm-hmm. right? So if you um, are an intolerant person that disqualifies you from the right of tolerance Mm because this is something that intolerant people love to do Mm -hmm. you criticize them and they immediately say aha you're betraying your principles you know you're a hypocrite because you're not tolerating me Mm -hmm. and I think it's it's for me an important principle that the people who practice tolerance are the people who deserve tolerance if you're intolerant you don't deserve tolerance right so that's one principle you know and of course this is not black and white it's shades of gray, how tolerant you are, how much are you willing to engage, how much are you open, right? And that's one, so that's one factor, right? What kind of person are you tolerant? Um, and another thing is um, transparency, mm. right? So new narrative is trying to model 
good behavior, you know, by being very transparent about our money and uh, what how we spend it and what we do with it and what our agenda is, right? So is he transparent? You know, honestly, I really don't know much about him. Mm-hmm. Um, the thing that always bothers me about Michael Petraeus is he has a Greek name. Why does a Polish national have a Greek name? <laughs> Right, because if he was born in Poland, he'd have a Polish name, even if it, he was an immigrant or something. Mm. Right, it it would be spelt in a Polish. Way. Why does he have a Greek? Petraeus is Greek for rock, right? It comes from the Greek for rock. Mm-hmm. Uh, same root as Peter, right? So what, what, you know, <laughs> Petraeus is a Greek name. Um, so how is he Polish? I <laughs> that's what that's what actually I I'm curious about. Um, so is he transparent about his funding, his money, what he's trying to achieve? Mm-hmm. You know, is he tolerant? Does he obey the laws? Um, is he open to discussion, criticism? Mm-hmm. Is he willing to engage? Mm-hmm. These are all things we need to consider. Mm-hmm. Um, as for him specifically, I don't think I know much, enough about him to comment about him specifically. Mm. Okay. Yeah. So uh, on that note, let's uh, move on here to um, a very, very, mm, a very, very contentious question here. But I, I'd like to just shoot it your way and then hear what you have to say here. Okay. So, could you speak more about the benefits, right? And and that re- that refers to the social, economic, and decolonial realms of remerging with Malaysia. So this is sort of a hot topic, uh, which right wing pundits use to kind of pin this traitor label on you. Um, so yeah, yeah. You know, I, the, never, I never yeah. understood that the one thing where I really agree with Lee Kuan Yew mm-hmm. is also evidence of me being a traitor so, so me not agreeing with Lee Kuan Yew I'm a traitor but in this one thing I really agree with Lee Kuan Yew and I'm also a traitor so mm-hmm. it makes me suspect that they just want to call me a traitor it's really not about my views <laughs> yeah I mean yeah that was something that I mean he cried on national television when he when he couldn't get that right I mean yeah. Well, okay, but Several in any times. case, in any case, what are the key benefits, though? You know, social, economic, or decolonial of remerging. Okay, so I think again, right? You think about the principles. It's not about Malaysia per se. Mm-hmm. It's about how do we create a political structure mm-hmm. that will protect and preserve the fundamental rights of the people in that political structure mm-hmm. and create. Um, you know, human and treat people in it with the dignity that they deserve, the dignity and, and respect, right? Human dignity, human respect that they deserve. Mm-hmm. That for me is the question. Now, we have uh, ended up in this world where there is this myth of the nation state mm-hmm. and that every state also has a certain nation within it. And somehow, if you're of the Singaporean nation, you're different from people of the Malaysian nation, when those are fictitious constructs, they were created because of a political, not so much accident, but selfishness in 1965, Mm -hmm. right? And so when I look at Malaysia, one of the things I wonder is, would the people in both sides be better off if Singapore was part of Malaysia again? Mm -hmm. And for me, the answer is yes. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I can get to that in a second, right? But is that the best possible um, political unit in which to protect people's human rights mm-hmm. and dignity and happiness, both economic and social, you know, cultural happiness, self-determination. I don't think so. I think we can do better. Mm-hmm. But we're not really in a world where we can easily redraw lines on the ground. Mm-hmm. So 
re-merging of Malaysia for me is probably an easy way of progress, mm-hmm. right? So when it comes to Malaysia, you know, again, um, it's sort of several things. Um, one is about um, creating a country which is a lot more balanced in terms of uh, different identities, mm-hmm. right? Uh, uh, which has uh, a lot more balance in terms of, um, sh- you know, stronger economic um, uh, and broad economic base. Um, I, I don't want to spend too much time on this. So I, I think how I'd summarize it is, is if you think about socialism being a fundamental view that we are stronger through collective action, mm-hmm. right? The bigger the country then, the more we can take collective action and the more we can create resources to help the people within that country who are less well off Mm -hmm. and the more we can work together to create change both internally and globally. Put Mm -hmm. it that way. Yeah. Right? So I think Singapore would be better off as part of a bigger entity. And, you know, if we want to join Indonesia, I'm also not opposed to it, Mm -hmm. right? Um, The fundamental thing for me is, is are we going into a country where we have equal rights, equal self-determination, where we can then create a country which fights for the rights of people, mm-hmm. creates you know, human dignity and respect, mm-hmm. right? And what that could be, whether that's Malaya, Malaysia, Indonesia, Mafalindo, right? Or Southeast Asia reunited into one whole, you know, I think the bigger, the better, mm-hmm. honestly. And I think all humanity should be in the same country but of course that's kind of utopian i don't know if we'll ever get there but we do really need to break this idea of nation and state they're mm. two different things one is imagined and one is you know negotiated mm. and they're not the same okay yeah so on that note i want to just say that it's approaching an hour and uh we should be wrapping up so i want to just ask everybody to um put in any last burning questions that you have into the chat we can take maybe a few more um, and then on that note so I want to thank everybody for their wonderful very thought provoking very insightful questions and as we wait for any last few questions to trickle in I think I have one burning question that I want to ask mm-hmm. right which is that um, it's I think it's very easy for us coming into this situation right looking at you as an individual in the news um, and forget that you are a human being right and you are a human being, you are a friend, you're a brother, you're a family member, right? You are a human being with human emotions, right? And you are a human being that is being crushed and being abused and harassed by the state, right? And I just want to sort of understand on a personal uh, and emotional level, what has been the cost to you, your friends, your family? Yeah, it's, it's tough, man, you know. I mean, you've been strong throughout this, but I, I mean, yeah. I, I, I know that this is some heavy stuff. So, you know, I, I think when you get abused a lot, it leaves deep emotional scars on you mm-hmm. that extract a heavy toll because you have to cope with and live with those scars right it's exhausting it's mentally exhausting it's physically exhausting it's definitely affected me my work uh how i relate to other people you know and here i have to really thank my family my wife my son my mother uh for their support um their unwavering support for what i do 
um, I, I've seen the toll it's taken on my mother and I know how scared she is but she has never wavered and never said you should do something else or whatever right she knows I'm doing the right thing and uh, she's tried to help me in every single way she can um, but I yeah I can't deny how exhausting it is to you know not just be subject to so much abuse but then to be constantly reminded of that abuse mm. and this is something i spent a lot of time talking to my therapists about you know when because it's it's one thing to experience something horrific it's another thing to constantly experience it over and over again because you have to constantly see the the circumstances and entity which created that abuse every day mm. right and often and you know as part of my work even um, so it has taken a, a huge emotional toll mm. and I mean she actually said to me I don't know how you're functional PJ <laughs> you know I was like well, what, do you, what do you mean I just yeah. you just gotta do it I mean what do you do not do it and I, she's I like mean, you I know that is an option PJ <laughs> <laughs> I mean that's sweet but I mean I, I can't imagine um, you know sort of what you're going through because um, you see yourself on news articles, you see yourself on TV, um, it's slanted in a certain way. You see comments oh, yeah. online. Yeah, I'm, I mean, I, I, I don't know how yeah. you do it. I but still can't get over, like, was it uh, September last year yeah. um, when the, the select committee, oh, sorry, uh, 2019, September 2019, front page of the Straits Times mm -hmm. compares me as a threat to Russian disinformation campaigns. Mm -hmm. You know, <laughs> Historian who lied, uh, Russia turning societies against each other. Mm -hmm. These are the threats that the Straits Times identified mm -hmm. as being existential threats to Singapore. Mm -hmm. I was like, what, what on earth are you even, who on earth even approved, you know, had this idea to put those two things on the front page next to, next to each other mm -hmm. in a list of two things that was the most dangerous threats that Singapore faced. I mean, I mean we can laugh yeah. about it. We can say it's absurd, right? But I think when you've worked this hard, you've earned um, your degrees. You've, you've earned um, the, the respect of the academic community. You back up everything you say. And then this is the, this is the bullshit. I'm just going to say yeah. it. This is the bullshit that you're met with, right? Yeah. Other academics don't have to deal with this stuff. People who work this hard are typically rewarded and celebrated and looked up to for this work. So I think the, the main point I want to say here is it's easy, I think, to sort of look at you as a public figure and forget that you're a human being and forget that it's a real human being who's being crushed by the machine, not a public figure. Yeah. I, I just want to add, I don't want to devalue the work that other academics do. You mm -hmm. know, not everyone's work or temperament or career or desire lends themselves to being mm -hmm. an activist. Mm -hmm. And I respect that. Um, I, yeah, so I don't want to compare myself to what that academics do or what other activists do. We're all trying to make a difference mm. in different ways. So yeah. we have time for one last very fitting question here, which is, do you think that... Actually, I also want to um, mm -hmm. talk a bit more about the whole 
foreign interference law that's coming. Yes. So do you want to do this question and then we talk a bit about that? Um, yep, okay. we can do that and then okay. we'll, we'll sort of end off there. Okay, so we have time for one last question. Thank you so much for asking the questions. Um, they've been really wonderful, but here's the last one for the day, which is, do you think that education reform is key to combat the PAP's crackdown on dissent, right? And this is very fitting because New Narrative is nothing but an, uh, an educative and re-educative platform. Yeah, sure. Um, definitely, you have to understand the history of our education system and how it has transformed itself very much into a key part of the PAP's propaganda campaign. The Singapore story was created in the 90s, right? And it, was, it wasn't even the first attempt, mm. but it was a response to the fall uh, in percentage of votes under Go Chok Tong mm -hmm. to cement the PAP excuse me, in people's minds as being equivalent to Singapore and being responsible for all the good things in Singapore. Mm -hmm. So definitely um, there's that. But I think there's a lot that's very insidious about educational system, um, which also needs to be reformed um, and which breeds a certain culture and mentality of dependence on the government mm. um, and uh, a certain hierarchy um, ingrained in people's minds, right? An ethnic, linguistic, uh, class hierarchy. Uh, there's an article that recently came on New Narrative about meritocracy and really how it's about creating artificial scarcity to justify then that artificial scarcity mm -hmm. and deny or you know give resources selectively to maintain a certain elite hierarchy. So definitely. Right, mm -hmm. educational reform. Mm -hmm. But to be honest, that applies to so many things in Singapore mm -hmm. because how the pension system is used to control people, how mm -hmm. the medical system is used to control people, how the housing system is used to control people, how the ethnic slash racial CMIO system and the whole welfare system is used to control people. All of that needs to have reform. Mm -hmm. And we can't reform it without freedom of expression, without willingness to debate issues, discuss issues, uh, tackle taboos, slaughter sacred cows. And so for me, that's why my personal quest is freedom of expression and free of information mm -hmm. and getting citizens to participate actively in discussions and debates. Mm -hmm. Because we have to understand no one person has the answer, no one group of people has the answer. We can only come up with things collectively if we want to make a difference. Everyone mm -hmm. has to participate. Um, so, yes, educational reform, but that is part of a broader whole structural problem with Singapore that we need to collectively tackle. Mm -hmm. So we talk, uh, we've talked a lot about the charges and the harassment being leveled at PJ Thumb against New Narrative. Uh, but I think one important thing that we do need to talk about before we end off is where we're headed forward, specifically with the whole foreign intervention situation and the likelihood of a bill being passed in that direction. Yeah. So PJ, can you tell us more about that? Okay, so we, we touched on this earlier just briefly, but I want to reiterate, right, that there is a law coming. Shamugam said as much in August 2019. Josephine Teo said it this week that there is a law coming and it is very clear they're targeting online citizen Asia and new narrative. Mm -hmm. And they are just trying to figure out how on earth to write a law that will criminalize us but doesn't criminalize, say, Channel News Asia or Mothership right or um, make it impossible for bbc and 
you know, other international media to operate here, mm-hmm. right? So that's why when Terry was summoned for questioning uh, by the police for the whole contempt of court thing last March, they actually asked him all these questions about internally, how do you operate and, you know, funding and all of that, right? Which he refused to answer because it's irrelevant. Mm-hmm. And today when they summoned me, again, they asked me questions about, you know, decision-making, internal structure, um, the sort of um, content creation process, decision-making process, and I refuse to answer because it's irrelevant. Mm -hmm. Um, But it's quite clear to me, I believe, that they are fishing for information, you know, and and if this is is actually the police are being used to fish for information, there's a huge abuse of of, of police time, right? Mm -hmm. Shamugam himself said our police are overworked and yet they have time to, you know, do this, like forced to do this and come after Terry and myself and other activists. Mm -hmm. But anyway... Um, but I want to emphasize to Singaporeans to really um, be aware that this is coming. They mm-hmm. are going to try and shut down new narrative and the online citizen in Asia. Mm-hmm. And they're going to come after us and they're going to try and find a way to do it, if not through this law, through another law. Mm-hmm. They've already made their intentions clear. And now that the election is over, they have time to act because mm-hmm. the next election will be in a couple of years and hopefully they'll, you know, what they're hoping is people forget by then. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I want to encourage everyone to keep fighting for freedom of expression, mm-hmm. right? And when the law is tabled, also write into your local representative and make your opinion known. Mm-hmm. That is really, really important. Don't ever think that writing into your representative doesn't help. It does help because they need to know what the mood on the ground is. They, they want to win elections too, right? And they also need data to justify uh, some of the decisions they make. And sometimes our politicians are well-meaning. They just haven't heard alternative views because mm. they don't get to hear alternative views. You know, So it's really important. Make yourself heard. Take part in discussions. Join mm. new narrative, right? So once again, I want to encourage everyone. Join new narrative. Come to our democracy classrooms. Mm-hmm. Um, it's very easy to join us. <coughs> Sorry. Uh, 52 US dollars a year that's about 70 sing a year uh, for as, for a membership or actually if you can't afford it just write in sponsorship at newnarrative.com uh, you know we'll give you a free membership and um, or donate newnarrative.com slash donate uh, we rely very very much on membership revenue uh, and donations mm-hmm. um, and so we really need your support if we're going to keep um, fighting for you. Thank you. Mm-hmm. So I want to give a final shout out, a final thanks to everybody who tuned in and joined us today with this wonderful interview and especially to those who liked, shared and especially those who contributed the wonderful questions that we had a fun time um, and a very interesting and thought-provoking time answering. Right. So please head on over to New Narrative. Uh, you can check out their work and join as a member as well. And finally, last but not least, I want to thank PJ um, for talking to me, for sharing your insights about literally everything, where we are headed, the current situation, how it is on the ground, and I think most of all about how you feel, right, about how this has affected you on a human personal level. Yeah. Thanks, Sean. Thank you for taking time out of your day also to come here and host this. Really appreciate it. And I want to thank all of you who joined us, listening in, watching on Facebook Live for your questions and for taking the time to join me. And especially to all of you for your solidarity and support today. Mm -hmm. Um, Really appreciate it. It really, really helps. Mm -hmm. You know, I don't think I can under 
states how much it helps to know when I'm alone in there with the police to know that there are hundreds or thousands of people out there who are making a huge clamor um, and standing up for freedom of expression. So I'm very grateful to all of you. Mm-hmm. And of course, to my team at New Narrative, wonderful group of people whom I couldn't do this without. So mm-hmm. thank you to all of them too. So remember to hashtag I'm with PJ Thumb. And with that, we'll see you next time. <laughs>